Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you on this uh, spring break week. For those of you that could join us and those who will listen to this message later on, we're really glad you're here. And uh, we are continuing today to walk through the gospel passages that the lectionary gives us. And so today we're in John chapter 11, the account that I just read about Lazarus. And if you have your scriptures or your iPhones in airplane mode, I'll never stop saying that. You can go there now to John chapter 11. And by the way, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jesse, and I get to be the pastor here. And I've had a couple people over the past couple weeks, I say this at the beginning of every sermon, if I haven't had a chance to hear your story or get to know you, just to hear what God's doing in your life, I would love that opportunity to sit with you at some point. So please don't be a stranger. I promise I don't bite, and I would love to hear more about what God is doing in your life. So you can see me after service uh, I'll be the guy in the robe. Well, I've had this conversation with several people lately over the past couple months. It wasn't the exact same conversation, but it was essentially iterations of the same conversation. And it all revolved around this idea of the tension and the interplay between God's work in our lives and our own work in seeking God in our lives. So one person put it this way, do we actually partner with God? Can we actually join him in his work? Do we contribute anything to our relationship with God? Is it entirely passive or is it more like we are climbing up a mountain to seek God and through that climbing and through that striving that we can actually see God and know God? Are we passively floating along? Are we being pursued? Are we living in the currents only of God's sovereignty or do we have any agency at all? So these were great conversations. In fact, if you take me up on that offer to grab coffee and you want to talk about that more, I would love to do that. Or we can go into trivia of the 1500s. But anyways, <laughs> I think this conversation often comes up. Uh, we can tell who loved to read history in their room. Um, I think this conversation often comes up in Lent, at least in my own experience, because it's a season of heightened focus on how we can make changes in our lives and open up our hearts and minds to the movement of God that he might have within our lives at this season and at this time. And our emphasis in the prayers, in the collects that I read, in the liturgy, in the scriptures that we look at are, is on how can we respond to God? How can we respond to the loving foundation that God gives us? What can we do and where can we focus our effort? And I think this is right because in leaning in on the scriptures and the way they've been lived out in the church since ancient times, we believe that this is a good and right thing to do, to ask ourselves, how can we respond to God? By the way, in the liturgy, it says, it is good and right thing to do. It used to say, in the older English, it used to say, right and meet. Yes, it is right and meet to do. So that being said, as any heightened focus on how we can respond to God's love is always a good thing, but it's also always a good thing to maintain our reference points so that we don't end up accidentally developing what I call a caricature of Christianity. Everybody know what a caricature is? It's probably, especially if you read cartoons in the 80s and 90s, caricature for those who the image doesn't immediately pop into your mind, are often used with political cartoons where an artist will pick one feature of somebody 
and then make it giant in comparison with every other feature. And so with Bill Clinton way back in the day, it was a giant nose or with, I forget how they did different political figures, but they would take a feature. If someone has big ears, they'd blow them way up. Or if someone had a bigger nose, they would blow the nose way up. And that's what a caricature is. Well, oftentimes we end up, or we can accidentally living in, end up living in a caricature of Christianity where we take one feature and we blow it up out of proportion to be larger than the other features. Let it not be so at our church. Let it not be so because it is right and meet to walk in the fullness of God's revelation in our lives. And it's right and meet to respond to God. And so today what I'd like to do is look at this balance between what God does and what we do. And so this message we're going to break into two movements. The first movement is to just describe together with you what is happening in this account between Jesus and Lazarus and the other characters. And then second is to focus in on the actual resurrection of Lazarus and what it represents to us in light of the discussion of what God does and what we do. So in your Bibles, we're in John chapter 11, verse 1, and this is the first movement. And I want to move through it sort of quickly by way of summary. So this passage follows along with the meta-theme of this whole gospel, which is Jesus revealing himself as the Son of God, as the one to bring life and light into the world. And this is what we've talked about all through Lent, which is Jesus being revealed. In fact, later towards the end of the book, John will write this verse. He says, but these things are written, as in this whole book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we see the purpose of why John is writing this entire book, and that is that we might believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and that through believing, we might experience new life in his name. And so if you remember back to what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, that's sort of the trail we've walked on. The first week, we saw Jesus as the new Adam and the new Israel who went into the desert, was tempted, and did not fail. The next week, we looked at how Jesus brings new birth into our lives and, and reorients us towards him so that we can turn to him. The week after, Stephen got to share with us about how Jesus came to bring living water, the kind of water, spiritually speaking, that quenches every thirst spiritually, every thirst emotionally, that we might ever have or need, that Jesus comes to bring that living water. The next week, we talked about how Jesus came to bring sight to the blind, and both physically in turning back the decay of creation, but also spiritually to give us eyes to see and ears to hear the new life that came through Jesus, that we could walk with him, not blind stumbling through life, but with vision and with sight for the deeper things of what God is doing in life. Today, we see Jesus literally bringing life where there was death and calling Lazarus out of the tomb. And one of the things that's interesting to point out as you think about the sequence of what Jesus is doing is that the Bible is filled with miracles, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But if you actually plot out the miracles on a timeline, you'll see that they, especially in the Old Testament, happen over the period of a long gap of time. So when you read through the Old Testament, it's sort of like a highlight reel and a summary. And so it can seem like miracles are happening all the time. But if you plot them out, they're actually few and far between where God intervenes in a miraculous way. And then there was silence for hundreds and hundreds of years after the last prophet. 
And then all of a sudden, after miracles being spread way out and then silence, Jesus comes onto the scene, and there's literally miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And this was Jesus saying, I came to reveal the kingdom of God. And the reason that Jesus did those miracles was not only to turn back the decay of creation that we're all subject to, but the reason Jesus did these miracles was to attest to the fact that he truly was the Son of God. That he wasn't just a philosopher offering us a unique way to live life. He wasn't just a unique prophet, but he actually was the God-man, fully God and fully human in the flesh. And if you remember the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, Anybody remember the Khmer way of saying that? Nikodam. I worked in Cambodia for several years, so Nikodam. I can't get that out of my head. But if you remember the conversation that Nicodemus had with uh, Nicodemus, um, Nicodemus at one point rightfully said this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that, it, that you do unless God is with him. So we see in the scriptures, agents of God's revelation are both revealed and authenticated by the presence of these miracles. So the purpose of, besides turning back the effects of the fall, was Jesus testifying to the world that he truly is God. And that's why later in this uh, chapter, if you look down to verse 41, Jesus, as he prays, he says, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. You see the theme here that's being unfolded before us? That's the movement of what's happening, the purpose of Jesus walking on the earth, the purpose of his miracles, the revelation to us that we may believe in him, and by believing in him, have life in his name. Now, this just highlights really quickly for us, as an aside, the purpose of the scriptures. They do give us knowledge about life. They tell us a lot about God and the world around us. They teach us how to navigate through the, the cultures of the world and the varying interests of the world. And while the cultures around us sway back and forth like a reed in the wind, the scriptures give us a clear path in which we were to walk. But ultimately, the goal of these scriptures, all of them, they were given to us so that we may believe in Jesus Christ and through believing have life in his name. They weren't given to us so that we would have a weapon to necessarily hit people over the head. They weren't given to us so that we might show off that we know a lot about some trivia in the Old Testament. It's good to know the scriptures. I'm not putting that down. They weren't given to us just so that we might win arguments or sound like the smartest person in the room. But they were given to us that we would know Jesus and through knowing Jesus that we would believe. In fact, everything that we do here, coming to the table, worshiping him, walking through Lent, embracing the seasons, Holy Week, I'm going to describe that later in the announcement. It's going to be a wonderful, amazing journey that we follow with Christ to the cross. And then afterwards, a celebration with bells and all sorts of cheering. It's going to be really awesome. All of that. It's not so that we maintain some sort of religious culture. It's also that we would know Jesus, and by knowing him, we would have life in his name. That's what we're doing here, to have life that we may believe. So that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming to bring life. 
Now, as we zoom in further on this passage, we see that Jesus wasn't just about revealing these lofty grand purposes of God, which he really was doing, and those are important, but this chapter also shows us that Jesus came into the midst of our lives and into our suffering. So Jesus hears Lazarus is sick in verse 4. It says that when he heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through this. And then it says that he waited for a while. Jesus delays. And then verse 14 it says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. The disciples couldn't figure out what he was saying. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. See that theme popping up there again? But let us go to him. So Jesus goes to Lazarus. He passes through Judea, and the disciples are scared for him to pass through Judea because just in the previous chapter, you'll see Jesus declaring that he is God and that people want to stone him. And so the disciples are scared to walk through Judea. So Jesus, again, walks through Judea. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He goes there, and he comes upon this scene of great mourning and great sadness. It's just this wake of a funeral. And, and there's these interactions that you find in this chapter, both Mary and Martha run up to him in separate times. They run up to him distraught, sad, hurt, asking rightfully, Jesus, why didn't you come? We sent word. Jesus, if only you had been here. If you had been here, if you had done what I thought you would do, if you had lived into the theology that I had for you, Jesus, if only you were here, you could have healed him and you could have stopped this death. Jesus, why didn't you come here when we sent for you? Jesus, if only, if only you were here, if only you had responded. I think as we see the reaction of these two women and many others there, the Jews who watched, they said, isn't this the one who could have healed him? We can hear some of our own questions in these responses. We can say, God, why did you let this happen? We think back to our own experiences. God, why did you not intervene? It's okay to ask these questions. In fact, the psalm I read earlier, which I just flipped to, says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Do the cries that are echoed all through the Psalms and through the prophets. And you see them in the New Testament's expression of pain. And one of the things that God always invites us to do is to come to him with these questions. They're not wrong to ask. Jesus, where were you? Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you respond? You know, I met somebody, uh, I met someone who was in our church years back. This was back when I was in Cambodia where they say things like Nicodem. And uh, we were discussing a challenging time that he was walking through in his faith. Just challenges, he had some challenges in his life, and he felt like God didn't show up and respond. Because of that, he echoed the very same words as Martha and Mary here. He said, where were you? And he was really struggling, and he was wrestling, and he felt guilty about that wrestling and that struggling. And he even felt scared, asking questions about faith and challenge and difficulty. And as I sat with him, we prayed, and you know, when you're in those situations, there's not really much to say. I tell people all the time that my role is I more get to sit at the intersection of God and people's lives and bear witness and be a bystander. Once in a while, I'll maybe say something funny or something encouraging, and I'll pray for people. But really, I get to be someone who bears witness to the work of God in their lives. And as we were discussing, he mentioned how somebody told him one time that as he was struggling with doubts and challenges that, that uh, someone said to him, God is not scared of where you are. 
God is not scared of where you are. In fact, he invites you to be in this place, to come to him with everything that is heavy on your hearts and to ask these challenging questions. He invites us into this. And this is what you see Jesus doing. He doesn't scold Mary and Martha. Oh, you have little faith. He doesn't scold the Jews around them, but he hears their cries. He senses their pain. He welcomes their questions. He is there with them. And not only is he there with them, verse 35 gives us the shortest verse in the whole Bible. Most of you could probably recite it. Jesus wept. (laughs) So not only does Jesus invite their questions and allow them to come to him with their pain, but Jesus actually joins in the condition of humanity and he cries. Now, some scholars, some commentators would say that Jesus cried because he was saddened by their lack of faith as he looked around. Others would say that he wept for joy, thinking of the resurrection that was about to come. He was weeping in uh, anticipation of what he was about to show people and his own resurrection. Others would say he met them there in their pain. I think all three could be true. We don't really know exactly why he cried. But the bigger truth that this demonstrates, again, is that Jesus is fully God, fully God in every way, but also fully man in every way. And in Jesus Christ, the big, lofty, eternal purposes of God are joined together in the present with the flesh and in all of its limitations, in the pain that we all know, and in the emotion and the experiences that we all have. God is truly together with us. Which is why he turns the conversation to not say, let me give you some reasons why I didn't come. Let me give you some reasons why I didn't respond earlier. But he turns the conversation. He says to Martha, you have the right theology. You have the right thoughts about me. But actually, here's what I want you to focus on. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. So in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I'm not just a theological framework, I'm not a box, I'm not just a set of propositions, but I am the resurrection and life. I am. I'm here to meet you, that you would believe in me, and that you would have life. So Jesus meets them in their pain and in their sorrow, in their emotion, and he says the answer to all of that is, I am. I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And he goes on to heal Lazarus in a dramatic way. He prays out loud so that the people would hear him. And he calls Lazarus out, come out. And Lazarus comes out. The friends pull off the bandages that are around him. They all celebrate. And Jesus shows his power before them. This brings us back to our Lenten discussion to move us into the second movement of this message, a much shorter movement. (laughs) Back to our question. What does God do and what do we do? What is our interaction between us and our work and God's work. Now, a question for you. What could Lazarus have done to bring himself back from the dead? What could Lazarus have done to bring himself back to the dead? Any amount of effort? Any amount of reading the right things? Any amount of saying the right things? No, he couldn't have done anything, right? It's a silly question because Lazarus was fully dead. He was dead. There's nothing he could have done to bring himself back to the dead. And so here in this story, it's God who brings resurrection. And the same is true in our lives. God brings us from spiritual death into spiritual life. This we can put very subtly in the what God does category. God brings life where there is death. He brings sight where there is 
blindness. He brings living water that quenches all the thirsts. When we cannot seek it and find it in ourselves, this is what God does. How about when Lazarus was resurrected? Jesus calls him out and says, come out from the tomb. Now, the story doesn't say that Jesus went into the tomb, put Lazarus on his shoulders, and did a fireman carry and took him out. It tells us that Lazarus actually walked out by himself. Now, did Jesus, did Jesus uh, carry him out? No, Je Lazarus, having full a new life, responded to Jesus and actually walked out. Now, I think this is a great picture for us walking with God. God brings new life. Once we have new life, we respond to God. And there's this cycle that continues in our lives that God is renewing us every day and every week. And as he renews us and brings new life into our lives, we respond by walking and listening and obeying to what he says. Now, I remember going to a college reunion once, and this was in my late 20s, so... A lot of my classmates had moved well along in professional school, and we went and met at a Chipotle in College Park in the University of Maryland, a place I used to sneak my credit card, my parents' credit card in and buy Chipotle all the time. We met at that same thanks, Mom and Dad. Um, so we met at this Chipotle, and uh, I was sitting there with two of my good friends from college. One had become a lawyer, and one had become a doctor. And as I told my wife on our first date, I was in between jobs at the time. And so we met, and it was interesting. The lawyer had become quite feisty, and the doctor had become quite feisty. They were young lawyer, young doctor, lots of energy. And somehow, at a fun college reunion together where we're just meeting and, and hanging out, those two got into a discussion about whether you should pull the plug on somebody who's in a coma. Now, I don't know how they got into that conversation. And it was interesting, as they went into the conversation, the lawyer was saying, you cannot, no one can pull the plug on someone in a coma. It's pulling, it's pulling, uh, it's, it's not your right to take that life, and no one can do that. And the doctor responded by saying, well, think of all the drain on society, and think of all these challenges. And then he went back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. And finally, the doctor at one point said, Really, there is no difference between somebody who's in a coma and somebody who's dead. Look at the qualitative aspects of their life. They're not living in their talents. They're not living in joy. They're not living in relationships. They're not having fun. They're not living into any, any amount of the potential that's within them. What is the difference between somebody who's dead and somebody who's in a coma? This is what the doctor said. Now, I didn't agree with the final result of what the doctor said, but I thought he made a good point. When we have life, the goal is to live that life. Now, it would have been silly. It would have been silly if Jesus had brought Lazarus back into life and Lazarus just said, you know, I'm just going to hang out here in this tomb. I'm just going to hang out here. It's dark. It's cool. It's not hot like it is out there. I'm just going to hang out there. I'm just going to embrace the qualities of life and not walk into relationship, not walk into the talents, not walk into the purposes that you have for me. I'm alive, which is great, but I'm just going to stay here in this tomb. Of course, that would have been ridiculous for him to do. Ephesians 5.8 says this to us, For at one time we were in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. So it's God who brings life. It's God who offers his spirit to create things anew. But he calls us to respond and to walk and to live. So it's God's power that sustains but it's our opportunity to respond to him.
Uh, a few weeks ago, Jared uh, got to share here about this concept called the middle voice. The middle voice is the voice between what uh, in Greek you would call the active voice, which is saying I'm doing something or he's doing something, and the passive voice, which is I was sat down and told by my wife to clean the dishes, not autobiographical. And so there's the active voice and the passive voice, and then there's the middle voice, which is somewhere in between the active and the passive, and it's more of a response. And he compared it to prayer. He says, prayer is always God speaking and us responding, but this could be said about all of our life together with God, that our life together with God is a response and sort of the middle voice. God went ahead and he acted, and we get to respond and walk together with him. So just to finish here, coming back to the question that we've asked in Lent, how should we respond to God's goodness and his love in our lives? I think the answer from this passage today is to live, to walk out of the tomb and embrace the fullness of life that God has for us. Now, For some of us here, our response can be along the lines of Mary and Martha. We can drop our need for the theological categories and all the answers and just turn to him and say, you are the resurrection and the life, and just believe. For some of us, it might be walking out of the tomb. Maybe we've been out of the tomb when we sort of drifted back. We, we like the security and the coolness and the darkness of the tomb, and we, haven't, we don't want desire to walk out of the tomb and live into full life. Maybe for some of us, our response to God is to walk out and to live. For other of us, other, others of us, it might be to throw off the attributes of death and to take on the attributes of life that God has called us into. To throw off the garments of death, the color of death, the stench of death, and embrace life together in his name, the purpose for which we were given new life. God calls all of us to walk together with him, to respond to him so that in believing in him, we would have life in his name. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your grace and for your love, for how you came to reveal to us new and true life in your name. We pray, Lord, that these words from your scriptures, these accounts of your interactions, Lord, would guide us to know you, to believe in you, and to have life. I pray, Lord, especially during the season of Lent, as we have every week, for people who really identify with Mary and Martha in this story now, those who are struggling, those who have questions, those who have pain, those who are lamenting here in this church, Lord, we do pray that you would meet them, that by the power of your spirit you would comfort them and grant them peace. And Lord, for all of us, we ask that you draw us into new life in your name. We pray this all for your glory and in your name, amen.